Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Hi, Rachel Gresler is a research fellow in the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Her work focuses on retirement and labor policies such as social security, disability insurance, pensions, and worker compensation. And because today we'll be talking about paid family leave, and I just found this out, I think it's worth noting that Rachel has six children and they are all under the age of 12. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Juliet. Thanks for having me. Before we begin, I would like to ask you a question that I ask all my guests, which is, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, you know, I would actually include myself here in saying that I think younger generations today um, need a, a better understanding of, you know, what the true value of freedom is and the consequences of alternatives like socialism um, you know, as part of my work on Social Security, I'm very familiar with a congressman, Sam Johnson, who passed away this um, last year. And he had this quote put on the dais in the Ways and Means Committee, and it was sketched into a wall by a former POW camp um, of uh, POW camp um, prisoner of his at Hanoi Hilton. And that quote was, freedom has a taste to those who fight and almost die that the protected will never know. And I think we need to remember, you know, where we've come from as a nation and to embrace and learn from history instead of attempting to erase it. So I would suggest, you know, reading more about how our nation was founded um, and just understanding and looking into what is life truly like in some of these places that we think might be more desirable than our current system. Wow, that's that's such a good response. I'm definitely going to... I don't know, just be looking into that more because I mean, I feel like I look into it a good amount. I have this podcast and stuff, but I don't know. I feel like that's something that everyone can do, like no matter how much they know and like, you know, you know, Yeah. so let's start. Can you tell us what family paid leave programs are and what the known benefits of these programs are? Sure. So, you know, everybody wants um, themselves and fellow workers to have access to paid family leave um, because it's a great benefit. We all want to be able to care for our family members to take time off for our own health. And certainly instances when families are having children, you want them to be able to spend time at home with them. Um, it is interesting to note, we often think of paid family leave only as when you have the birth or adoption of a child, but that's actually only one out of five leaves that are taken in the U.S. The majority of them are when workers take leave for their own health condition, um, and then about 25% are when workers are caring for a family member who's ill. 
So there are definitely benefits to this leave um, being taken, but I think that it needs to be an optional um, allowance there because we know that if it is not optional and it's mandatory, there end up being some unintended consequences. So um, legislators on both sides of the political aisle these days are calling for the federal government to provide paid leave. Can you tell us what the different types of paid leave programs are that some people in Congress are calling for and the differences between them? I mean, I think some have mandates, some are paid by employers and some are paid by the government. I mean, I don't know much more about them than that, really. Can you help us sort out the differences between these? Sure. So actually, I will get to the federal programs. But first, I wanted to talk about what's already out there, because there are actually about seven state programs that already exist and two more that are have been um, legislated, but just haven't kicked in yet. Um, and there, when you have different state programs, you see more variants in them. You know, in general, these programs are going to allow workers to take between six and 12 weeks of leave to care for a new child, their own health benefit, or for a family member. Some of those will even include if a spouse is deployed. There are various um, reasons to take the leave. The benefits typically only replace about 50 to 70% of workers' previous wages. And so that is a little bit restrictive for people who have lower incomes and can't pay their bills with only a proportional check. Um, and the taxes for these programs range from you know relatively low, about 0.3% of a worker's pay, up to over 1%. Most of the states put that tax directly on the worker, and so the employer takes it out of the worker's paycheck, um, and all economists will agree that regardless of who you make pay the tax, the worker is actually going to pay it in the long run because the employer will just reduce their wages if they're the ones that actually have to pay it. Um, but there are some programs in D.C. and Washington where they put the tax on the employer instead, or at least part of that tax and kind of a problem and unintended consequence of that is that you can actually have discrimination against women of childbearing age if the employer looks at them and says, I think they're going to be more likely to take leave. You know, they're going to cost me more money if I have to provide this um, benefit for them. So there are a bunch of programs out there at the state level. Some of them have been around for about a decade and some are just starting up. And so we know a little bit about the programs that have been around longer, you know, New Jersey and New York, California. Um, sorry, New York is newer, but we're learning more about those as New York and D.C. and others as they come online. Um, I'll just talk about one federal program because it's the one that is most predominant. That's called the Family Act. So what this program would do is it would allow um, up to 12 weeks of leave at a pay rate of about two-thirds of your wages. And this is called the cup of coffee program because it would be financed by a 0.4 percentage point payroll tax, which amounts to about $4 a week. They say a cup of coffee, you know, $200 a week for the average worker. Um, the problem is that the math doesn't quite work out with that because we know that actually about 16% of workers have a need to take leave in any given year, and the average amount of leave is seven weeks. So if you have that many workers who want to take leave, and yet they're only paying on average $200 in, you can only finance about one out of every five leaves that workers want to take. And so either you have to ration who can take the leave, 
or you have to drastically increase the taxes that would finance that program to probably something closer to two, 2.5% of workers' wages. And then we're talking about $1,000 a year for the average worker. So let's get into the arguments um, about why we need federal paid leave. So one of the first things is that the United States is the only industrial nation without a government paid leave program. That makes it sound as though American women and American workers do not have access to paid leave. But I'm pretty sure that that's not correct. Like, I know it's not correct. So what's what's up with that? Yes. And this is where we get into the statistics. And you'll hear that, you know, only 15 percent, only 17 percent of private sector workers have access to paid family leave. But that's not really an accurate figure. And even that figure that comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that just looks at a a certain type of leave that's available, that's increased from 13% to 17% over just two years. So it's really important to point out that we might be the only country that doesn't have a national paid family leave program, but we're the only country that has this vast network, this vast and expanding network of private sector paid family leave programs that instead of being one size fits all, they're actually really flexible and accommodating. And most of them are more generous than these mandated state paid family leave programs that we've seen set up um, by state governments. So and even when you look at, you know, how many people actually have access to this, when you just survey individuals, um, the majority of people say that they do have access to paid family leave and about three out of four of them, um, the workers who take leave in any given year receive full or partial pay. So it just depends on the wording. You know, a small employer that has just five employees might not have this formalized paid family leave policy that shows up on the Bureau of Labor Statistics survey. But that doesn't mean that if they have an employee who has surgery coming up, that they're not going to give them paid time off or that if a mother needs to go to a doctor's appointment or to be in the hospital with a child, that they're not going to work things out in arguably a more flexible and accommodating way. How much has it grown in the past like 50, 70, 80 years, I don't know, in the past like few decades? Well, we don't have data back all that far, but and we don't have these survey-based data, but we have seen really rapid growth even just since 2016. And I think that part of that came from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, where the business tax rate declined, and you all of a sudden had these companies, these employers who had this extra money. And so the more resources they have, the more able they were to provide these benefits. And many of them went out and they surveyed their workers and said, you know, what would you like? Would you like higher pay? Would you like more health insurance? Would you like paid family leave? And a lot of them said paid family leave. And so we saw this big boost and that boost has continued over time. And I think will only trend upwards, except in the instances where you do have these state programs that are enacted, because we have heard from the private employers, that when they are in a state that already has a program, they make their workers use that program first before they start collecting their own benefits. And certainly if you are a small business that doesn't have a program yet and you're starting up in a state that already has a program, you don't have any reason to provide this benefit for your workers. And if they're paying the tax, you may as well make them go to the state program instead. The second claim that I hear a lot is that women 
get paid leave, but not all of them do. And that's that's what needs to be fixed. And it should be fixed with a government program. Can you tell us who it is that who it is, like who the women are, who the people are in general, who don't get paid leave and why you think or why they, why, if you know, like exactly, exactly why they don't get paid leave? Yes. So in general, the lower income the worker is, the less likely they are to have access to paid family leave. And there are a number of factors that contribute to that. Um, you know, it can be that the the value of the job that's being performed um, has a lower value and there is not enough resources to provide the paid leave. It can be that the worker isn't in that position for a long enough period of time to qualify for the leave. Um, But in general, we have actually found that it's just, it's really hard to get to this set of workers. The best way to get that access is to help people to become more productive, help employers themselves um, to increase their output and to have more resources left over to offer to these workers. The problem when you step in, and it seems like, you know, a government program would be a great way to fill this gap. You just make it available to the people who need it the most. But we've actually found the exact opposite happens with these programs. And instead of disproportionately benefiting lower income workers, they're regressive and they disproportionately benefit middle and upper income workers who, at least in the U.S., already have access to these benefits. And we've seen this, you know, not just in the U.S. states, but also especially in Europe. But in California, the low income workers are only one fifth as likely as higher income workers to take leave. So those people in the bottom income bracket, only 4% of them take leave through the state program compared to 21% at the top. And in Canada's program, it was said to exacerbate class inequality because the mothers in the bottom group are only about half as likely as those in the top group. And so you think, well, maybe it's because these individuals can't get by on that proportion, that partial wage, like the Family Act. If you're making $600, you probably can't pay your bills on $400 a week. Um, And that would definitely be a problem if that is what was implemented, is that those lower benefits just aren't enough. And so the workers don't take leave at all if they can't afford a partial benefit. But when it's been tried in other countries, you know, Norway said we're going to increase our benefits to 100 percent so that we can try to better accommodate these lower income workers. And yet still they found that the generous extensions to paid family leave were, quote, costly and they didn't have measurable effects on outcomes and they actually had poor redistribution properties. You know, same thing in the UK, the higher income mothers twice as likely to take, you know, more than 26 weeks of paid leave as the lower income mothers. And so it's definitely a laudable goal to try to expand access to lower income workers to paid family leave, but this is not the best way to go about it. There is a bill in Congress called the Working Families Flexibility Act And that would particularly target these lower income workers because it applies to those who are um, working hourly wages, less than $35,000 a year in general. And all it does, it's not a new program, it's not a new tax, it just says we're going to allow these workers to have the choice. When they work overtime, they can pick between time off or overtime pay. Under current law, private sector workers are actually prohibited from having that choice, even though state and local government workers are allowed to have what we commonly um, refer to as comp time. So there are some things that could be done and they actually wouldn't involve a new government program. It sounds like the other ones, like the ones where they, 
increase it to 100%, like stuff like that. It sounds like it really is not doing what it's supposed to, and that's kind of frustrating, and I don't know. I wish people could see that. Um, I mean, I'm sure that if every woman could get it for free, then they would love to take it if they if it came at no cost at all. I mean, some advocates for the government program argue that the fact that every woman would like to have it, but not all of them do, is a market failure. But is it really a market failure? I mean, I'm sure many people would love to drive a Tesla if it was free, but that that's not a market failure. Well, and the problem is you can't ever have it be free. There is no free lunch and there's always a cost associated with it. And when you look at this group of lower income women um, or even lower income workers in general that we're trying to target, you know, some of the surveys have showed that they fear losing their job. And so that's a potential cost of taking this leave. And even people who don't fear, you know, job loss might think, well, I might not have that opportunity going forward if I take this leave. But when you have the chance, and this is you know, I'm passionate about this subject because having taken six leaves myself and working with various employers for each of those leaves, it's really come easily. And I've found so much value in being able to sit down with whoever is my boss at the time and say, look, here's, you know, how I envision this happening. Does this work for you? And all of the time they've been accommodating. And even when there's a change, whether it's, you know, one baby coming five weeks early or being on bed rest or somebody in the NICU, you know, being able to send an email or have a phone call to my employer and to explain things is so much different than the process when you think about if there is one size fits all government program where you're going to have to file for benefits six weeks in advance, fill out a bunch of paperwork, have all these forms submitted from your doctor to your employer to the federal government bureaucrats who are there and then wait around and see if you're actually going to qualify for those benefits and then get you know a two-thirds benefit for a limited period of time under limited circumstances. It's just, you know, it's not the experience that I think anybody would want to have. And so I think that when we can talk about, you know, is there a market failure and and what do people want? I think most people want flexible programs and you simply can't get that through, you know, a government program, but you can get it through the private employer. And it's just a matter of, you know, the value you place on those benefits and workers expressing their desires to have those type of benefits. And yes, you probably have to be willing to give something up in return for that. But I think that most workers are willing to do that. And I feel like what I hear a lot whenever it's like, oh, this new government thing, this new this, this new that is like, oh, well, it comes with like 10 years worth of paperwork. And I'm like, who likes that? Literally, who likes that? I don't know. But that just to me sounds very unappealing. I would not want to fill out all that paperwork. And what you described as your experience seems very nice and very like personal. And I don't know. I feel like that is the sort of thing that we should go for. And paperwork is not that. So I don't know. (laughs) That's um, so something that I also think about a lot is the fact that people who advocate for federally provided paid leave quickly talk about all the benefits of the program. And there are lots of benefits of paid leave. I mean, that is not what the argument is, but they ignore the cost that comes with it, which is also what you were talking about. But what are the exact costs of the paid leave that people aren't seeing when it 
is coming from the government. I mean, I know like we can study Europe because that's where they have like lots of federally uh, mandated paid leave and stuff. So can you talk to us about the costs? Yeah. And there's, you know, the monetary costs that you potentially can perceive but might miss when it's coming out of your paycheck. And, you know, I think to have the type of program that a lot of people talk about, say 12 weeks of fully funded paid leave for, um, you know, having children, your own medical um, incidents, and also caregiving, we're really talking about somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500 per year for somebody who's making about $50,000. That's a lot of money because most people are living paycheck to paycheck. And so where is the wiggle room there to finance this additional benefit? And what about the people who don't ever plan to take leave um, or don't have those incidents? And you talk about $1,000 or $1,500 per year built up over a 30 or 40 year working career. Those people have to give something up. And often it's sacrificing opportunities for themselves and their families that would really be far better for them. Um, And so, you know, that's just, you know, the dollar costs that we think about, but there are also costs in terms of the workplace environment. I mentioned that, you know, if employers are mandated to provide paid family leave, or even if they're not mandated to pay for it directly, but to um, allow people to take it based on the government's decisions and not them working directly with their workers, then they might discriminate against those workers who are most likely to take it. Um, you know, clearly there are legal measures that individuals can take if they feel they've been discriminated against, but it's not that difficult to discriminate in the hiring process against a woman of, you know, childbearing age or against an older worker who you think might have um, health conditions. And longer term, it's just the role that you have the government is going to play in your lives and slowly tacking on all these programs, whether it's paid family leave or additional social insurance programs, it's just putting more control into the government, having bureaucrats decide, you know, how much workers have to pay into these programs, when they can access the benefits, how much they're going to receive under what type of circumstances, as opposed to the alternative, you're going to pay for it one way or another. Would you rather send the money to the government and have to fill out all the paperwork and only be able to take out the benefits if those programs determine that you are eligible and that's a legitimate cost? Or would you rather just have that money to get in your paycheck and put away and have some additional savings so that you can use it on whatever is best for yourself or your family? The Cato Institute has done some polling on paid leave and the provision of paid leave by the government. These polls have shown that when women learn the trade-offs, the costs and the benefits inherent with any government-mandated paid leave policy, that their support for these policies collapses. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. And so, you know, I was actually surprised at this data at first because it showed that the overwhelming majority of Americans, 74%, support a federal paid family leave program. So that's a government program. But then when you actually start asking about what you would be willing to give up for that program, the support plummets. And so if it meant higher taxes, you know, just $450 per year, which would be the minimum cost of a modest program, support drops below half. And when we think about a program that would cost at least twice that much to provide workers with what they want, 
you're talking about, you know, over $1,000 a year, support is even lower. And then when you think of other trade-offs, you know, what if it means lower pay raises, um, fewer benefits or reduced likelihood of promotion for women, the support drops even lower, like around 30%. And the lowest level of support is if you were to cause us to have to reduce funding for things like education or social security benefits, then only 21% of workers would be willing to accept that program. Um, And looking at the federal government's finances and how much Americans already pay in taxes, um, they pay more in taxes than they do on housing, food, and clothing combined, we can see that something's got to budge there. And so there will obviously be those types of trade-offs. And it looks like Americans are not willing to make that. 74% to 21%. That is an insane drop in percentages. Like that, that's crazy. But also it makes sense. But I'm kind of surprised at 74% of Americans. Actually, I'm kind of surprised. But then when looking at like the other data of when they like the percent drops, it makes me less surprised. Yeah. I think it's important to note too that, you know, there is this widespread support, but people have in their mind this vision of what they think the program is going to be and the benefits that it provides. But if we look at the state-based programs um, and how many people actually are eligible to use them and do use them, it's like between 13 and 17%. And so when you think, oh, it's only going to um, benefit a tiny fraction of the people who it should, you know, it's all the more reason not to have these programs, especially if you're trying to help lower income workers. And even the CBO's score of the Family Act that I talked about found that you would actually need two times the stated tax rate. Um, And even if you had that, the program would still only cover half of the workers who wanted to take the leave, and it would only provide them with two thirds of their wages. So we're not talking about this program that is, you know, as generous and flexible and accessible as people think it would be. Jeez. (laughs) What do you say to people who argue that the level of benefits being proposed in the U.S. isn't anywhere as high as the as those that are mandated in Europe so that the negative consequences that Americans would would face and would like have to deal with from these government mandated benefits would be smaller than Europe. Like, what do you, what do you say to that? Well, the level of benefits that's been proposed is actually pretty similar, but I, I see that as problematic because we're trying to help lower income workers. And we know that in Europe, these partial benefits end up not being accessible to lower income workers and they don't use them. Um, and so we really should be talking about a higher benefit so that you get those lower income workers. But the biggest difference between the U.S. and Europe has to do with growth in the program over time and the number of weeks. And so, you know, as with any government program, it only gets bigger over time. And when you look at the OECD countries in 1980, the average number of weeks that workers could take for paid family leave was 14. In 2013, it was 42 weeks. So we're talking about tripling over that, you know, 33-year period. And I think the same thing would happen in the U.S. is that we can only expect it to expand over time as we realize, hey, this wasn't helping the people we wanted it to. But then you talk about astronomical costs. 42 weeks is almost a year. 
That is that is an insane amount of time. I mean, I don't know. I've never had a child because I'm 17. But like, <laughs> yeah, but I've never that just thinking about it. I'm only 17 that and a year of my life or close to a year of my life is a long time. Like, I don't know. For me, that's a lot of time. And for an employer, that probably is a lot of time that your worker is gone or is, you know, I don't know. It's just yeah, a lot, well, like it's interesting you you just mentioned that. It made me remember that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation actually did provide 52 weeks, a full year of paid family leave to workers after the birth or adoption of a child. And they recently pulled that program back and reduced it to half as much. And then they also provided a, a sizable subsidy. I can't remember if it was $15,000. But, you know, this is a foundation that cost is not clearly its biggest concern, but they found that they just couldn't pursue their mission and they couldn't serve their clients when they had so many people who were out of work. And so it does get down to, wait, how do you maintain your operations if every anytime somebody has a child or when they have a medical condition or need to care for a family member, they can be out of work for up to a year? So you've mentioned that, well, you've actually mentioned it a few times and it's it's, I don't know, it's very helpful in my understanding of it, of the different programs, the paid leave programs implemented by the state governments and local governments and stuff. Um, can you tell us what the differences are in each program that is adopted by each state and what you've learned in studying them? Sure. Let me just highlight a couple things, you know, about what I think might work in the states and the things that we have found don't work. Um, you know, New York is a new program and they have chosen instead of setting up a new bureaucracy and having the government be in the business of running an effective insurance agency, they have given that task to private sector insurance companies, ones that typically provide private disability insurance. And I think that's a great model because then you don't have all the overhead costs and we know that the private sector does this for a living. And so they're obviously going to be more efficient at it. But something that we're learning now is that you can't have the government dictate the rate and not let it, you know, the market determine what it is because some of those disability insurance providers are saying if they don't change the rates, we're going to get out of the market. And then you're actually going to have nobody that can manage the programs and provide the benefits to determine who's eligible. And so there needs to be an allowance for the rates to change. If you have 15% of the population that wants to take benefits, you can't have a rate that only supports 5% of the population. Um, you know, I think that's something that would work in the states is to have an entirely optional program, a public sector program. We have seen that that is um, what a lot of the states do for the self-employed workers is they allow them to pay into the system if they want to, and they don't have to if they don't want to. And there are also some exemption for smaller employers. And I think that optional model is a great way for the states to be thinking about these programs. Um, you know, some of the things that aren't working well we know that the programs are not actually that good at educating workers about their eligibility, even knowing that they exist. You know, New Jersey has extremely low awareness and actually only 12% of people who were eligible to take benefits for a new child actually took them and only 1% of eligible workers to care for a family member used the benefits so we know that something is wrong there when you set these programs up that are supposed to be widely available. Um, you especially want lower income workers to use them, and yet they're not. Wow, that's kind of amazing. And also, 
well, I mean, it's like amazingly awful how few people know about it is more what I mean. But also it's kind of cool that like New York had like a good idea about this and like pursued that and then still kind of messed it up a little bit. But I don't know. That's kind of, that's good. What about California? I've always been kind of interested. Don't they have some sort of something? Well, they've had a program for the longest period of time. Um, You know, it does suffer from being regressive, lower awareness among the lower income workers, lower use, but there've been the most studies done on California. And so um, there was an interesting one recently And we often think that paid family leave programs will help women. They'll be able to stay in the labor force. Their earnings will rise. But it actually found the opposite. And they found that women who use the paid family leave program six to 10 years later, their earnings um, and their employment levels were about eight to nine percent lower. And kind of shockingly, and I don't know how to describe it or, or explain it, but they actually had lower fertility rates having had these paid family leave benefits available to them. So just a very interesting finding there that says sometimes, you know, we have these intended goals and it ends up that these programs have the unintended consequences or opposite effect. That's so, that's so interesting. I feel like if they, like, why why not change it at least a little bit or? Yeah. I mean, at least when you have these programs, I don't think government programs are the answer, but at least when we have them across different states, we can see what works. And I hope that there will be some changes. But unfortunately, so far, you know, they've tended to just follow the Europe path of let's just keep expanding until we reach the goals that we want. And I don't think that that's the solution. It actually has the opposite effect. The states were once explained to me as a bunch of different little American experiments, which is a great idea. I really like that idea. And it helps me to think about like the different state governments and what they do and understanding why they all do different things sometimes. But part of it that just doesn't work is usually when you do an experiment, you look at the results and then you change it if it doesn't work. And I feel like sometimes they just don't do that. But there's that. (laughs) Um, So what you mentioned before a little bit is like the different ways that when there were changes in taxes and stuff, companies started to extend their paid leave. Like, for example, Target did this. Um, They extended their paid leave program to employees who usually don't, like part-time and hourly employees. Mm -hmm. So what options, what policy options would be good to increase paid leave in a less distortive way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just as you pointed out, you know, we have the 20 biggest companies in the U.S. now all have paid family leave policies. And this isn't, you know, the Fortune 500 companies. This is Lowe's, Target, Starbucks, Chipotle. These are employing lower income workers who are exactly the group that we're trying to target. And so I think what we should be looking at is like, hey, how did these companies do it? And how can we expand that model to the smaller companies and help, you know, the entrepreneur who's just starting out to be able to provide paid family leave? And they might actually be doing it. And it's just not a formal policy that we know of. But, you know, I think that one thing is we could have a payroll tax credit for private disability insurance policies instead of just having this social security's disability insurance 
insurance program, which is incredibly ineffective and really doesn't serve workers well. Sometimes they wait more than a year to even see if they're eligible. What if we allowed employers who provide private private insurance to have a credit against that public program? And private insurance covers maternity leave. It covers a worker's own medical condition. So that's a good way to expand it and also to have it run through a more efficient system than a government one. Um, we can provide universal savings accounts so that workers can take additional money with them and set it aside and not worry about it being locked up and only available to spend for their child's college or only available in retirement, but to use it for any purpose, including paid family leave. And then when they get that raise or bonus, they start setting it aside without the fear of not being able to use it. Um, you know, we could allow penalty-free withdrawals from IRAs. That's something that's, you know, available temporarily right now for paid family leave, make that permanent. And just in general, anytime that you can reduce regulations and the amount that companies spend on compliance, that frees up so many more resources to provide paid family leave. I was actually able to sit on, sit in with a bunch of HR representatives from large companies And somebody said to them, well, wouldn't it just be easier if we had a federal government paid family leave program so that you didn't have to worry about complying with the state one? And they said, no, it would be so much worse. We already spend so much time complying with these programs that it takes away from the amount of money and resources we have to provide our own benefits and our own compensation. If we didn't have this program, we would be providing our workers with so much more. And so just paring away at those, you know, needless regulations that just drive up employers' costs, any way that you can reduce taxes and allow them to give more back to their workers will help people to have access to paid leave. Can we, can we like put that on like in like a megaphone and like direct it right at like the government so they can hear that? Um, okay. Last question. What is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? That's a hard one. Um, you know, I, I think over time it would probably be just looking at the way that we help people who are in need. And so I remember when I was a child um, and I've just always had a heart for helping people who are less advantaged. And I put a sign on my door and I said, everybody has to pay to come in and I'm going to send the money to poor children in Africa. So I kind of had this Robin Hood mentality <laughs> about take money from the rich, give it to the poor, that'll help them. Um, and then I think as I got older and started working, I was thinking more along the lines of, you know, you need to teach a man to fish instead of give him a fish. And so, no, we shouldn't just give people money. It should all be about having these programs that set them up for a better future. And I absolutely still believe that, but I'm still, you know, I'm evolving over time. And I think it's come from a personal experience working with a family in need and just realizing that there's no one solution. Um, and it really looks different for whether you're talking about a child that's growing up in poverty, you know, a refugee that's come here, what age are they, where do they live, what type of education have they had access to, what was their upbringing. And so, you know, more than, you know, a government program or throwing money at it or saying, here's, you know, this job training program that you can go through, it's really needs to be a personalized and individual approach. A lot of people need kind of a hand to guide them as opposed to a government office to go to. And I just think that it looks different in that, you know, community and family and religious organizations can do a lot more 
to support individuals and families in need. That That's a great answer. Thank you so much for being here today and for talking to me. I learned a lot. I hope my listeners learned a lot. And yeah, I don't know. It was great. Thank, Thank you. you so much. This was just a pleasure. <laughs>